All right, you can turn with me again to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Uh, we want to look at six chapters in the book of Hosea together, beginning in chapter 6, verse 4, all the way down to uh, chapter 11. Uh, let me pray before we uh, look at this passage of God's word together. Let's pray. Father God, we do ask that you would use anything and everything to draw us closer to you. Uh, Father, we thank you for how you kept your promises to the nation of Israel, both in bringing judgment and exile and in, not, and in that not being the final word. So, Father God, we pray that you would help us to cling to Christ more closely as a result of this sermon and this passage, we pray in his name. Amen. In the Old Testament, the prophets had a pretty interesting job to do. Um, and the, the details of their job or what it looked like, what it sounded like, depended somewhat on when they were prophesying. Uh, what what uh, settings were they and the nation going through? Who were they ministering to? When were they ministering? Often they were set up, as we've talked about a few weeks ago, as a stark contrast to the false prophets. Uh, you think of the prophets of Baal in Elijah's time. They were declaring that Yahweh is, is sovereign. He's in control. He's not... The weather channel, right? He's not just forecasting, he is creating the weather. He's controlling the weather. And, and he is jealous that he be praised as such. Early prophets in Israel's history were, were often primarily calling the nation back to the covenant that God made to them through Moses at Sinai. He's calling them back especially to what we find in the book of Deuteronomy. Other prophets uh, were called to prophesy against and predict judgment upon foreign nations. You think of Jonah uh, preaching repentance to one of Israel's enemies. And then later in Israel's history, later in Judah's history, when the kingdoms are split, the prophets predict judgment. And they're still preaching the book of Deuteronomy. Hosea is one of these, right? Remember, he's called the deathbed prophet of Israel. If you just remember that weird title alone, it'll help you to remember Israel is about to die, right? Assyria is about to come. He's the last prophet to the northern kingdom. He is the deathbed prophet. Israel, of course, doesn't know it. Economically, they've been flourishing, though politically unrest is on the rise. We'll talk about that a little bit here this morning. But Assyria is coming, and this is in fulfillment, Hosea said, to exactly what Moses preached in Deuteronomy. That judgment would come to those who do not keep the covenant. So Hosea is not saying this might happen. Hosea is saying this will happen. You have been unfaithful. I, exile is coming. Just like Moses said. But then Hosea also says, though it's not the primary note, it is a significant one. Judgment isn't the final word. It's not the end of the story. They will be saved, but it will require time. It's been said, one of my teachers put it this way, you can get people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? 
exile and deliverance. This is going to be more than about geography. It's about the heart. It's about who and what they love. I want to take that idea of love, and you see it there in the bulletin in terms of resources and even application questions. And it's certainly at the heart of the story of Hosea and Gomer, though that story in some ways concluded in chapter 3. The prophet's experience of Israel's unfaithfulness and displaying that in his own marriage is still echoing in the background. We saw in past weeks that idolatry is spiritual adultery. This week, Hosea is going to take some other images and bring them to bear. He's going to set up the mirror of God's word and say, you think you know what you're like as a nation. You think you know what you're like when you, when you love other gods, when you go another way. Here's some more images. We have some assumptions of what we're like as individuals, what we're like in relation to God We have assumptions about God himself. And Hosea wants to clarify those things to help us understand. And so he's going to use lots of vivid contrasts. The fancy word is similes, right? These are metaphors that use the word like or as. These are inspired illustrations from the book of Hosea again and again and again. He's going to compare Israel is or is like something. He's laboring that they would remember his message. This morning, I want to look at these six chapters under just two points. First five chapters will be under point number one, what we are like when we love another. Point number two, what God is like when we love another. What we are like when we love another. This is the rest of chapter six all the way through chapter 10. And then what God is like. When we love another, we'll see this in chapter 11. What are we like when we love another? Here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, all the way through chapter 10, we have a couple cycles, right? Where Hosea is going to bring some indictments. Really, it's the Lord bringing an indictment against the nation. And then he'll hit a series of four vivid comparisons. So here comes an indictment, here comes four comparisons, then comes another indictment, then comes four more comparisons. All of this under our first point, what are we like when we love another? So you can turn with me to Hosea chapter 6 if you're not already there. And Hosea begins in verse 4 by addressing their love. God here is speaking through the prophet and he's contrast. He's going to contrast their love with the love that he requires. He says, their love is like a morning cloud. It's like fog rolls in at night and then it clears as soon as the sun hits it. He says, their love as a nation is like a light dew. Before the sun even hits it, it's gone. It's there, it's small, but it's quick to evaporate. It doesn't remain, it doesn't endure. Let's begin reading in verse 4, and then note the contrast when we get down to verse 6. Hosea chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. 
Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God desires, you see it there in verse six, steadfast love. In contrast to the dew, in contrast to the fog, in contrast to what is little and does not remain. This is the type of love that God shows to his covenant people. Steadfast love and mercy. It's, it's laden with mercy. It endures. It's not light. It doesn't evaporate. That's what he desires. Jesus quotes this verse. That's maybe why you know this verse is from Matthew chapter 9. Quotes from the Septuagint. We read this. When Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We think that God's top priority for us in our Christian lives is our busyness, maybe, or our sacrifice, or we might even think that we wouldn't say God would think, but we might think ourselves that our looking spiritual, our testimony, we might say. Israel wouldn't say they had abandoned Yahweh, right? They had simply supplemented, right? God is good for deliverance out of Egypt, but if you want rain next week, you better go up to that high hill. You better make a sacrifice. You better cry out to Baal. They hedged their bets. They, they worked the angles. And yet, what does God desire in verse 6? Look there again. We talked about this two weeks ago. He desires his people to know him abidingly, deeply, to know him, to love him faithfully. And that faithfulness always requires exclusivity. Yahweh will not share your affection with lesser lovers. God's priority is steadfast love. That is covenant-keeping love. Not distracted love, not shared love. Not wandering love. Look again at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But instead, Israel has broken covenant. It's the opposite of covenant keeping love or steadfast love. Broken the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. They have been unfaithful, he says in the rest of chapter 6. They have, been, they have done evil It continues down in in chapter 7. Look at verse 2 of Hosea 7. But they do not consider that I remember. I, I, I remember, says the Lord, all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. What an image. Israel's own actions are acting like their enemy. Their own actions are surrounding them. It's like the witnesses have come into the courtroom and are standing around, all speaking against. The witnesses on the stand against them, against the nation, are their own actions. Do you think it'll be different for you when you stand before God? Hosea then presses his message deeper. 
telling Israel that she is like image after image after image. So this first group of vivid comparisons begins in chapter 7, verse 4. We'll look at each briefly. Beginning in verse 4, he says, Israel is like an oven. Now, we have a hard time, right? We go in, we have an oven, maybe you have electric, maybe you have gas. You're picturing an oven. Don't picture that oven. I think the closest thing that we have would maybe be like a a mud oven, if you've seen one of those. Maybe maybe something you're more familiar with would be like a a wood-fired pizza oven. You know, you're kind of picturing it. It's maybe big in the back of a restaurant. And, uh, and, and in this case, the fire has not been manned at all, and it overheats. The fire is just raging in there. It doesn't cook. The fire destroys. By morning, he says, it's blazing. The nation is out of control. Their sin is beginning to be self-destructive. It's going to explode. And when it does, they won't be able to blame Assyria. They won't be able to blame Yahweh. Look how he concludes this this image that he began of the oven there in verse 4, down in verse 7. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them call upon me. If you remember, all the kings of the north were wicked. None of them worshipped Yahweh. And then if we zoom in, the last several, I think it was four or five, all were assassinated. They're killing each other. The corruption is, is building like an unkempt fire that begins to rage and it's going to blow. The second image comes in chapter 7 verse 8. Not just an oven, but a, but a cake. A very different image, though, related. And here the idea is that this is a cake that hasn't been turned. Now, their heating wouldn't have been as even as maybe our gas ovens in our kitchens. And so they would have needed to have turned it to make sure that it was cooked the whole way through. Otherwise, it would have just looked cooked. But it would be mushy. It would be unedible. It would be uncooked in the middle. He says, that's what you're like. You're half cooked, but you don't know it. The cake looks done, but it isn't. It's like when I make brownies, right? It looks done. Well, now you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get the toothpick out, right? Does the toothpick come out clean? The nation thinks she is whole. She thinks she's done, if you will, but she is deeply compromised. Look down at verse 9, right? She's given her strength away to other lovers. And here's the issue. She doesn't know it. She thinks we're still going strong. The economy's up. Look again at verse 9. Strangers devour her strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Maybe that's an image of premature aging. One commentary suggested maybe that's, maybe that's the image of mold on the bread, on the cake. Verse 10, the pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. After all of this, they do not seek the Lord. Full of confidence, they're like a half-baked cake. Look at the third image, beginning in verse 11. They're like a dove, and we think, oh, dove. We release those, right, for fancy events. I think you want to think of like a pigeon, a starling, 
Maybe a seagull, like something, like the kind of birds, and I know, Tim, you're a bird guy, so I'm a little nervous with this, but there are some birds I think most of us dislike, right? That's what we should be thinking of. Silly. Look, look what he says, verse 11, silly and without sense. I think of a, a starling, right? Flying into a window again and again, trying to get out, trying to get through. The nation's flying over to Egypt for some help and then over to Assyria for some help. Senseless, hopeless, just wandering around. Look down at verse 12. As they go, I spread over them my net. You get the image. I'll bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them for they have strayed from me. Like a silly bird. Destruction to them for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Then in the end of the chapter, he, he refers to them as a, as a bow pulled back. It's going to backfire, treacherous bow as in a bow and arrow. Chapter 8, he continues. He now calls Israel to sound the alarm of their own destruction. Pull 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 the fire alarm, right? Get the sprinklers running. Look down at verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, right? The, The vulture, another bird image, is circling the corpse. Hosea says, forget the ambulance. Call the morgue. Spiritually compromised, they're blind. And it seems like one of the notes he's saying is you're blind and you don't know it. You don't know your own spiritual condition. You still claim to know God, but you don't. Your actions tell a different story. You claim to love God, but you're going around chasing other lovers to your own destruction. Pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Note the hypocrisy, right? To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. What a warning. Down at verse 7. For they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The rest of the chapter, chapter 8 here, is a description of this whirlwind. Israel has hired lovers. They've sought to buy allies, and those allies, just like their idols, will not rescue them and will be their destruction. In a word, destruction is coming, and when it does, Hosea says, you're simply reaping what you sowed. Look down at verse 13, halfway down to the verse Still in chapter 8. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. 
And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. Chapter 9, no different. The notes continue. Hosea again and again reaches for the strongest possible language to describe Israel's sin as he has throughout this book. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to demonstrate through words and through his life to illustrate the severity of their sin, the personal nature of their rebellion. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore forsaking your God. Jump down to verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Go down to the end of verse 9. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. God will remember. God will punish. And on that day, Israel will know. God is telling Israel now so that when Assyria comes and they're coming, they won't have any confusion as to why they're coming. They know why they are coming. Nor will they have any confusion as to whether or not Yahweh is still in control. He is in control and he's sending Assyria to judge his people. Now, Beginning in chapter 9, verse 10, all the way into chapter 11, we have another set of vivid comparisons. We'll go through these again briefly. We have four more. First is grapes and figs. Grapes and figs, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 9, down to verse 17. Israel is like a grape in the desert, like figs in their first year. Cultivation is required. Or they will be fruitless. And Yahweh is saying, I'm going to cultivate you no more. You will be dried up. You will not bear fruit. God says, I will depart from them. I've begun to hate them, he says. I will drive them out. I will love them no more. Look at chapter 9, verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. This is shocking language for a people that would have been so confident. We're God's people. We're Israel after all. Don't you know our history? It says, I know your history. And it's an indictment against you. Then he moves from these grapes and figs that he's no longer going to cultivate to a vine in chapter 10. Israel is like this productive vine. Now, and the more that this vine produces, the more she, that is the nation, will build, but it won't be for the Lord. They're building for their lovers. Worship of Baal was supported, not worship of Yahweh, with the blessings God brought. We've seen this theme before, right, where Israel credits her lovers for the blessing and the reality it was her husband Yahweh all along saw this illustrated in the life of Gomer back in chapter 2 the issue again is a wayward heart 
They will worship anything, anyone but God. They will credit Baal, not God. We talked about this two weeks ago. We aren't so much tempted to credit Baal, but ourselves, our strength, our wisdom, our hard work, ignoring that it is God who provides. So we use the fruit of our labor to support, to bring attention to ourselves. And God says, I'm going to end this. Judgment is going to come and it's going to be like a poisonous weed that grows up in the ditch at the end of your field. And by the next thing you know, it's throughout your field. It's ruining the whole crop. Look down at chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. There. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Chapter 10, verse 3. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds. In the furrows of the field. Jump down to verse 10. When I please, I will discipline them. And nations will be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. The next image beginning in chapter 10 verse 11 is that of a calf. This calf is calf is seems it's it's difficult sometimes to decipher these images. But it seems that he's happy to serve Yahweh initially. But then she will be yoked to judgment. Again, the image is one of sowing and reaping. He uses the image positively. Here, the prophet's heart in verse 12 of chapter 10. Sow for yourselves righteousness, Israel. Reap steadfast love. Break down your furrow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Then he turns in verse 13 and he says, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. It's about sowing and reaping. He calls to them, so wisely reap righteously That's not what you've done, and that's not what's about to happen. You're about to reap. Look again at the heart of verse 12 of chapter 10. I love this phrase. It is time to seek the Lord. When is it time to seek the Lord? As I was thinking about this, I thought, well, isn't that always? (laughs) Right? It's so so obvious. But I, I think we need to kind of work this out. When we maybe are most tempted to not seek the Lord is when we most need to seek the Lord. So when God reveals sin in your life, it's time to seek the Lord. And as we've talked about the last several weeks, if you don't know what God is like when you love another, you will be hesitant to seek the Lord. But when you know that he is the most loveliest most beautiful, 
most warm and inviting and tender and compassionate and gracious and merciful possible being. Like, you, you cannot help but love him and return to him again. When you've been unfaithful and God feels so distant, it's time to seek the Lord. When he uses hard things in your life and the heat is really hot, it's time to seek the Lord. Whether your struggles are secret or public, whether they're old and have been with you for decades or they're new, it's time to seek the Lord. Israel has for decades now sought other lovers. They have rebelled against God from the kings to the prophets to the priests, all the way down, they have turned. And Hosea has held up the mirror and declared, this is what you're like when you do that. And it's a mirror that we need to look into as well. We need to see what we are like when we love another, when we commit sin, when we commit spiritual adultery, when we are unfaithful, when we seek satisfaction and security in anything anyone but god we brothers and sisters are like the dumb starling looking to people's acceptance rather than the gods looking to what we own to establish our worth looking to our performance record to validate ourselves rather than to christ's restlessly running after another purchase another hobby another distraction when we love another and so are unfaithful, we are like the dumb bird flooding around, never landing where we should. Or to take another image that he's used, we are like a cake, unturned and so uncooked and useless, fooling ourselves because everything looks good. So we keep up appearances and we manage our image, especially maybe on Sunday. Constantly assessing people's assessment of us. Walk into a room and, and we just automatically think, what do they think? What do they think? Rather than embracing God's priority of steadfast love towards God and neighbor. We don't have a true knowledge of God. But we're actually okay with it. So long as we think other people think we do. And when we don't love God with a steadfast love, we're like a cake that isn't fully cooked. Hypocrisy begins to mark us and no one, sometimes even ourselves, even we don't know it. There's one more image that he uses. It's in chapter 11 and it's that of a toddler. It's the final image here in our section begins in chapter 11 and it's the hinge to our second point point number two what god is like when we love another what god is like when we love another in chapter 11 god is likened to a father and we are a toddler look at hosea chapter 11 verse 1 when israel was a child speaking of the nation i loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. When Israel hadn't shown herself responsible, when Israel hadn't matured 
to a respectable nation, when Israel had not yet become lovely, God loved her. When, when she was in exile in Egypt, God delivered his child. And we know this verse because Matthew quotes it regarding our Savior in Matthew chapter 2. Chapter two right? The pattern, even involving a toddler, an infant child, Matthew says is fulfilled in Jesus when he was called out of Egypt to deliver us. God then presses the image of the toddler just a step further in verse 2. Look down at verse 2. Parents, you can feel this, right? The more they were called, the more they went away. Come here. Gone. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burnt offerings to idols. For generations, they ignored my law. They ignored my prophets. They persisted in running away. And of course, Israel thought that Baal had taught them to walk. Baal had provided for them. Baal had protected them. But it was their God who had done it all along. He was the one standing over them, holding their hands teaching them to walk. He was the one protecting them from danger. He was one providing for them the very means with which they offered sacrifices to their foreign gods. When Israel loved another and kept wandering off, God was the kindest of fathers. Patient, loving, caring, Look down at verse 3 of Hosea 11. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their hands. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness. With the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and I, I fed them. And then Hosea in verse 5 says, but make no mistake. You've sown to the wind and you will reap the whirlwind. Judgment is coming because you have wandered away, because you have not listened. Judgment is coming. Assyria is at the door. The nation's days are numbered. Exile is coming. Not if, but when. And it is soon. Look down at verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. Though they called out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Then, the image is so, it's as if God hears himself talking, if I can use that language. And he cannot bear the thought and his heart recoils, right? Compassion wells up. Tenderness, not judgment, will have the final word. Here, of all places, we have what D.A. Carson called some of the most affectionate language in all of the Bible. Not just all of those, all of the Bible. 
Through judgment will come salvation. After exile, return. After discipline, embrace. God is moved with compassion. Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? I can't give up my child. I won't. God adopts, friends. He adopts. He never orphans. He redeems. He never just releases. He wins. And those he wins, he never loses. Look at the end of verse 8. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What affection. What love. Verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. I'm not done with my adulterous, unfaithful bride. I'm not like a man. I'm God. I'm your God. My love is steadfast. I will draw them to me again. Verse 10 and 11, he says, I'm going to roar like a lion and they will come back to me in repentance. They will come to me again and I will embrace them in love. What is God like towards his people even when they sin? The image at the end of verse 8 is striking. It, It gets our attention. It makes us maybe even a bit uncomfortable. His heart recoils, not away from us. He's not drawing back, but, but towards us. In love, he, he gave, sacrificially gave his only begotten son to redeem us, to buy us back, to deliver us from exile and bondage, right? We look to the cross where the love of God is on full display. Our God will save and our God will sanctify and our God will satisfy and he will never turn his back. He pursues and he woos and he wins and he keeps always. Oh, the steadfast love of the Lord. It is better than life. Nothing, nothing, not Egypt, not Assyria. Not Satan, not your sin, not your circumstances, not death itself can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His love endures and it never grows thin. His love pursues and it doesn't stop. His affection is unwavering in all seasons of your life and into eternity. So may we know what we are like when we, when we love another and what God is like when we love another. May we be able to say with confidence, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us, brothers and sisters, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The bonds of his love are thicker and stronger 
than anything else. They will endure in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that though we are so dumb and so silly and so wayward and so hypocritical, though we at times turn, even as your children, we at times are unfaithful. You are faithful. And you chasten those you love and you put up cattle panels and you drive us back to yourself. But we thank you that the image is more nuanced than that. That in the driving there is a wooing. There is an alluring. There is a winning. There is a purchasing. Oh, Father, forgive us for the times that we have excused our sin. Forgive us for the times where we have wandered away and we've been frankly okay with it. So long as others haven't seen it. Father, would we know? Would we press on to know? Our God in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Throughout our sermon series in Hosea, as we see unfaithful Israel, do you see yourself?